Hello again, this is your friendly neighborhood host, J.T. Wheatley from the History of Comics podcast, back for another episode, this time with the second and concluding part of the life of Liv Gleason, the Daredevil of the Golden Age. When we last left off, uh, Liv Gleason's uh, publishing company had taken off with the creation of Daredevil and Crime Does Not Pay, bringing in the crime genre. In addition, he had married his uh, third and final wife, Peggy, along with re-entering the army to further serve his country. However, both his personal and professional uh, life would soon be coming to head as the Gleason found the uh, forces, forces all around them uh, working to bring him down. Despite serving his country in two world wars, the FBI took an interest in Lev Gleason over his politics on December 16, 1943. They oversaw a, a trip he took to Mexico City. Soon the agency was even tracking his mail. The FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, who would, would even write a memo where he named Lev Gleason as a native-born communist. Ironically, Hoover actually approved of crime comics like Gleason's Crime Does Not Pay, believing it helped deter children from becoming criminals. However, by July 2nd, 1945, the FBI had concluded that Gleason was not a significant part of any communist movement. They would respond in a uh, December 1945 Telegram article where it claimed uh, Gleason was an active communist by Louis Binder, and the investigation would continue for another seven years. Gleason would even be approached by the FBI for an interview on September 23rd, 1953 about, about Walter Bernstein, and American screenwriter and producer over Salute magazine, which Gleason, with Gleason noting that he barely knew him but confirmed he had a left-wing or even communist leanings. Bernstein was in fact a member of the Communist Party at one point, like Liv Gleason. Gleason did confirm Bernstein originally pitched the idea of Salute for him to publish, along with having been a member of the Communist Party in the 1930s, but left over the Hitler-Stalin Pact in 1939, which the party didn't denounce. Gleason also stated he wanted to diversify the content on the magazines like Salute and Reader's Scope, saying it was fine to have some progressive pieces, but if it was only that, then the magazines wouldn't sell. At his heart, Lev Gleason was a magazine salesman and knew a progressive magazine was worthless if no one read it. The FBI would finally close Gleason's file on February 11, 1954. Walter Bernstein, meanwhile, would be blacklisted by Hollywood during the 1950s due to his political beliefs, but like many blacklisted writers, worked under pseudonyms until he was able to work again in the open. Notably, he wrote the movie The Front in 1976, which starred Woody Allen and Zero Mostel, and was set during the 1950s blacklisted Hollywood. After returning to civilian life, Lev Gleason and Margaret moved to the West 106th Street on April of 1946, and he started Lev Gleason Publications, which launched Lover's Lane and Boy Meets Girl. The latter featured true stories, including one about Donald Maloney, who on the July 28, 1945, helped rescue numerous people from the Empire State Building when a U.S. Army bombing plane crashed into the 79th floor. Maloney quickly became a national sensation and received the Medal of Valor from the Medal of the American Legion. Boy Meets Girl ran the story about him six months later called The True Story of the Empire State Building, but Maloney wasn't happy about it and sued Lev Gleason over using his name and likeness without his permission. Maloney tried to argue that comic books were not protected by the First Amendment since they were illustrations over photographs, which somehow fictionalized the account. Gleason countered that the comic books were not just the realm of fiction and that illustrations were mostly accurate. The courts ultimately decided with Lev Gleason, stating that the deviations to Donald Maloney's actual story were minor at best. Afterwards, Lev Gleason and Margaret uh, moved to Chakwuka, where they bought their first house on 73 Park Drive. 
There, Gleason published Newcastle News on November 1st of 1945 in Newcastle, one of the two hamlets that made the Chapuca, which was meant to be a voice of the multiculturalism and interested in engagement, along with attacking Republican politicians who dominated the government in the area. It quickly started a rivalry with the Newcastle Tribune, not only when Gleason would point out that the news was actually owned, edited, and published in Newcastle, while the Tribune was done so a few towns over in Mount Kisco. They were also different in politics, as the Tribune was more conservative and in line with the Newcastle population, which was two to one uh, Republican and Democrats in registration. While Gleason's news supported the United Nations, he was disappointed by the failure of the League of Nations after World War I. In 1951, the Newcastle News received an honorary mention in the National Editorial Association's annual newspaper contest in general excellence, which prompted Gleason's to put the prize-winning newspaper on the masthead. However, Gleason could never get the news made the official part paper of the Newcastle, which continued to be the Tribune, but the paper was also useful in helping promote Gleason's comic books, such as Daredevil and Crime Does Not Pay. Of course, Gleason's left-wing politics were obvious before he even started his own paper. He defended the USSR in a letter to the Newcastle Tribune editor, calling it a republic, which would come back to haunt Gleason years later, as did many others who defended the USSR and other communist countries at first. This would draw the early ire of the Tribune, who started covering his every move, including a dinner he was present at on January 1st, 1947, featuring Democrats and Communists. Gleason was a registered communist back in the 1930s to honor Vito Maricantino, an American Labor Party representative from Harlem. The dinner would result in the forming of the Labor and Citizens Committee to uphold free elections, with Gleason serving as an officer. However, as Gleason's part in another political organization that would cause him his first legal troubles, along with ultimately leading to his downfall. Gleason was part of the Joint Anti-Fascist Committee, which was formed in 1941 to assist in the Spanish Republicans in the Spanish Civil War against General Francisco Franco, who had lost a fascist coup against the democratic government of Spain. It was founded by Dr. Edward Barsky, who previously volunteered for the International Abraham Lincoln Brigade to assist the Spanish Republicans, which also included such celebrities as Ernest Hemingway, of which many of his novels were based on. During his service, Dr. Barsky would help pioneer the use of mobile army surgical hospital units, which today we call MASH, while also providing some supplies from New York City. Despite their help, on January of 1939, General Franco overthrew the Spanish government, leading Barsky to uh, flee to Toulouse, France, where he bought and rebuilt a hospital to help the Spanish Republican refugees. When he eventually returned to New York City, Barsky formed the Joint Anti-Fascist Committee to help provide further assistance. The original point of the committee was to continue Barsky's work of aiding Spanish Republican refugees, and he would even have Pablo Picasso as an honorary chairman. His latest goal was a building a hospital in New Mexico City named in Barsky's honor to help Spanish Repu- Republican refugees, with celebrities like Orson Welles, Lucille Ball, and Ernest Hemingway supporting the cause. However, because the Spanish Republicans were supported by the USSR and its leader, Joseph Stalin, to many Americans they were synonymous with the communism, and thus the anti-fascist committee would be accused of being communist front by the House of Representatives Committee on Un-American Activities in 1944. This resulted in U.S. Attorney General Tom Clark placing on a list of subversive and communist organizations by the Department of Justice, which was created by President Truman, who had then instituted oaths for federal employees swearing against communism, resulting in hundreds being fired or forced to resign. 
On March 29, 1946, Lev Greeson was personally targeted in this when he received a summons to appear in Washington, D.C. to testify on the committee on April 4, 1946 at 10 a.m. However, while Gleason was on the executive board of the Joint Anti-Fascist Committee, he rarely attended meetings as he was uh, busy with other projects, along with running his own comic book company. Edward Barsky, who was the national chairman, previously denied the subpoena, along with refusing to turn over any requested papers on February 13, 1946, fearing to put refugees at risk, all of which Gleason was unaware of. As a result, when Gleason appeared to testify before the House of Un-American Activities Committee, he stated he was at present at the meetings, which frustrated the representatives when they questioned him. Despite his testimony, the U.S. House of Representatives on April 16, 1946, voted 292 to 56 to hold the Joint Anti-Fascist League in contempt. On March 31, 1947, the grand jury indicted the board on two counts of contempt of Congress and conspiracy to commit contempt. At this point, I hired the O. John Ruse, who had previously prosecuted Nazis at Nuremberg trials as their lawyer. In May of 1947, the trial commenced in the Federal District Court of D.C. under Judge Alexander Holtzloff. However, they were, able, they were able to force the judge to be removed due to bias, as he was previously served as an FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover's legal advisor, helping craft many of the anti-communist policies for the federal agency. On June 13, 1947, Judge Richmond Keach was appointed to preside so the trial could continue, and on June 27, they were found guilty by the jury. Barsky got six months' prison sentence along with losing his medical license while Gleason decided to take a deal to avoid jail time, accepting a $500 fine and three months' suspended sentence, though uh, Rhodes promised to appeal it all the way to the Supreme Court. On March 1948, the Court of Appeals upheld the convictions. Two Supreme Court cases did arise from uh, this. The first, U.S. v. Bryan, over the executive secretary, Helen Bryan, who held the Anti-Fascist League's uh, documents and whose conviction was upheld. The second, U.S. v. Fleischmann, was over the board member Ernestine Fleischmann, was also upheld. In 1951, Rose brought suit against the U.S. Department of Justice to remove the Anti-Fascist League from its list of subversive organizations, and the courts ruled in the favor of the board in Joint Anti-Fascist Committee v. McGrath, but in 1952, no release was given. Ultimately, the Joint Anti-Fascist League's board would be dissolved in February of 1955. In addition, it was later unearthed that uh, Lev Gleason had a past life as Alexander Lev, who published Soviet Russia Today in the 1930s, a magazine that reportedly gave the true facts about what the Soviet Union really was really like, though history has proven there was nothing more than propaganda. Lev would continue to serve as a business manager of the magazine until March of 1940. The same month, Lev Gleason launched Friday, his other magazine whose left-leaning bent would be accused of being a communist front as his business manager. In addition, Alexander Lev also helped publish Salute, a veterans magazine modeled after Stars and Stripes, and Yank, before selling interest in it. On March 8, 1947, Congressman George Danders, representative from Michigan, outed Lev Gleason as Alexander Lev. On March 13th, he would, be, he would even give an interview to the Newcastle News. However, this was supposedly anonymous venture would come back to haunt Lev Gleason. While this was going on, Lev Gleason decided to publish Yanks, a patriotic comic. However, Gleason soon found himself deep in another controversy when he appeared in the June 2, 1947 edition of Newsweek in an article about communists. This would lead him to being targeted at anti-red rallies, which led Gleason to print an editorial in the Newcastle News where he attacked McCarthy and Republican efforts to make it an election issue. This also led to a feud with uh, D. Witt Wallace, the publisher of Reader's Digest, and on May 24th, Wallace sent a letter to Gleason to withdraw the editorial, leading to Gleason to send a counter-letter on June 2nd. 
Gleason would cite In Fact Magazine, which was attacked uh, Richard Digest, and Gleason also published Reader's Scope, a more left-leaning competitor to Reader's Digest, which would feature writers like Howard Fast and Truman Capote. Wallace countered that he had the right to pu- pull the ads from the Newcastle News and accused George Seeds, the publisher of In Fact, of being a communist. The last In Fact would be published on October 2nd of 1950, and Seeds would uh, later be blacklisted. Reader's Digest would remain the best-selling magazine in America until 2009. While Gleason was able to weather this this anti-communist attack, another one was coming from the comic book industry in general, and he and his comics would be right in the middle of it. On December 20th, 1948, protesters at St. Patrick's School in Binghamton, New York, burned 3,000 of Gleason's comics from Crime Does Not Pay to Daredevil. It was part of a larger protest movement against the comic book industry, which which some were uh, blaming for juvenile delinquency. Some of the hatred was targeted at the June 1947 issue of Crime at Pay with the story of the woman who wouldn't die about two migrant boys who kill a farmer and his family. In one gruesome act, they even doiced the farmer's wife with kerosene and set her on fire, leaving her to drag her burnt, bloody body to a neighbor's house for help. In the next month's issue, the story Carlos Barone, the murderous bully, the character commits numerous criminal acts from blinding a young girl to pushing a boy, pushing a boy down the stairs. Parents and even courts were taking notice of these crimes. One judge in 1952 cited crime does not pay as the reason for a juvenile criminal's crime. In response to this, on May of 1947, Lev Gleason and other publishers formed the Association of Comics Magazine Publishers, ACMP, to counter the protest. The intention was to set the content standards and guidelines for comic books in hopes of heading off potential government intervention. However, only 12 of the 34 publishers at the time joined, accounting for only 15 million of the 50 million comics sold in the United States. Other outside forces started pressuring the comic industry as well, most notably Dr. Frederick Warren, who arrived on the scene with an article in March of 1948 edition of the Colliers called Horror in the Nursery. In the article, he printed Jack Cole's Murder, Mayhem, and Me from True Comics, which depicted a woman having a syringe stabbed into her eye. In response, the ACMP tried to implement a content code that June, though Lev Gleason was opposed to it. Among the rules, it called for not depicting crime in a glamorous fashion and no scenes of sadistic torture. However, it failed as most publishers were still not a part of the ACMP, and those that were just ignored it. EC Comics quit the organization in protest. Gleason would debate Dr. Warren on June 10th of 1948 on WCBS Radio, where he pointed to numerous examples of comic book readers being deterred from crime thanks to stories in Crime Does Not Pay. On March 29th of 1948, Winters vs. New York ruled violence could not be regulated like a vicinity, striking down the New York State's law to censor it. The case was not about comic books, but an adult crime comic, headquarters detective, but the principles still applied to them as well. However, the National Congress... For priests and teachers, that September launched a campaign against the violent material. In the summer of 1949, Gleason filed a lawsuit against Quincy, Massachusetts over the comics ban, which was also challenged in Los Angeles as well, this time with the California Supreme Court striking it down. Soon, Lev Gleason was made president of the ACMP in 1949, while Lev Gleason Publications was doing even better. On February of 5th, Gleason would write an editorial letter in the New York Times where he claimed 40 to 60 percent of comics now sold were read by adults, and that he and many other publishers deliberately were creating these illustrary genres to cater to them. Gleason would debate Frederick Warren again during an episode of American Forum on WNBT television, which was entitled Do Comics Cause Delinquency? 
They would also appear alongside uh, Senator Estes Conifer from Tennessee, who will become a future ally with Warfarin against comic books. Gleason also pushed the ACMP code, but Dell would refuse, mainly because their in-house code was even stricter than the one proposed. However, Gleason and the ACMP were busy dealing with the state of New York, who were trying to, a new bill to get around Winter's ruling, this time by having them regulated by the State Department of Education. Gleason would appear before the Legislative Committee on August 8th of 1949, arguing their ACMP was working and that their readers naturally picked the good comics over the bad. Gleason would even argue the only reason there were bad comics was because most publishers had enjoyed the ACMP. He would later defend comic books on February 12, 1951 with the presentation The Effect of Comic Magazines on Our Children at the Men's Club of the Temple Belf of Northern Westchester. However, the ACMP would eventually run out of money, leading to the cold being abolished as most of the major publishers like Marvel and DC had just opted out of it. Lev Gleason would attempt to counterclaim he was a communist during all this, stating he was a Democrat on June 23, 1950. However, his old nemesis, the Newcastle Tribune, would point out that he was a registered communist in the 1930s, joining the party in 1936, but he had left in 1939, as pointed out over the USSR's pact with Nazi Germany, and the, the then-American Communist Party's refusal to denounce it. On September 22, 1950, Gleason would drop his libel lawsuit against Frederick Warren and the New York World Telegram, and on September 28, 1951, the Newcastle News ended itself. In addition, Gleason started adjusting his comments to cleaner content while he stepped down as president of the ACMP on May of 1951, being succeeded by Harold Moore, the editor of Famous Funnies, which Gleason helped create back at Eastern Color in 1934. On February of 1952, Lev Gleason was, would participate in the Northwestern's University Forum on what children should read, where he argued that children should be able to decide what to read. He would later write an essay in Today's Health on September of 1952, claiming 75% of children between the ages of 4 to 19 read comics, which resulted in sales of 60 to 70 million a year. And Gleason cited studies to back these figures up. Gleason would also urge the State Department to use comic books as part of the Marshall Plan, where they would provide children overseas for reading material. Gleason would even help create some of these with Uncle Charlie's Follies for children, which lasted for five years. By July of 1953, he had sold two million of those comic books. However, the ACMP's memberships fell to just three publishers by 1954, and this could not have come at the worst time as Dr. Frederick Warburton's book, The Seduction of the Innocent, was published that same year, which accused comic books of causing juvenile delinquency in children. This led to the Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency on the April 21st of that year, chaired by Senator Estes Confirer, to investigate this and had Wolverine as his star witness. Comic publishers were called to testify as well, but Gleason chose not to due to his communist past, believing it would only hinder him as a witness. He would regret this decision and try to testify after the publisher of EC Comics, Bill Gaines, his own disastrous testimony. Gleason even tried to get Frederick Wolverine investigated, believing he appeared on the committee just to sell his book, but the damage was done. In response, the comic book industry formed the Comics Magazine Association of America to replace the ACMP with Liv Gleason Publication even joining. On October 26, 1954, it formed the Comics Code Authority, CCA, to regulate comic book content along with no distributor carrying a comic without the code printed on its cover, showing it had the CCA approval. Gleason would be able to keep the word crime from being censored on titles so his books like Crime Does Not Pay and Crime and Punishment could continue, but, this, but the story content would be hampered significantly, such as cutting out any negative depiction of authority figures or detailed descriptions of criminal behavior. Gleason tried to have his comics continue, but the CCA restricted them so much 
so that they, they would end after four issues with Crime and Punishment ending on August of 1955. Overall, comic books would be kids' fair for years and Liv Gleason's publications would end, with his office being put up for lease on March 29, 1955, and even sold his house in September of 1955 as well. Daredevil would continue until September of 1956 with issue number 134. On December 18th of that year, Lev Gleason Enterprises formally ended. Lev Gleason would leave the comic book industry and work in real estate in the late 1950s. As a result, the copyright of his comic book creations like Daredevil lapsed, leading the Marvel Comics to snatch up the name a few years later when Stan Lee created the new Daredevil with artist Bill Everett, which is the one we know today. The Golden Age Daredevil would still make appearances sporadically, even today, as he is known in, as he is now in public domain. Eric Larson would feature him in Image Comics' next issue project, where the character returned to Silver Street Comics, and later Daredevil appeared in Eric Larson's Savage Dragon uh, number one forty one, with Little Wise Guys returning in issue number one forty eight. Daredevil will also be featured in Project Superpowers in two thousand eight, a limited series by Jim Kruger and Alex Ross from Dynamite Entertainment which is also a revival of other Golden Age heroes such as the Fighting Yank and the Green Llama. Most recently, Daredevil has appeared as a supporting character in The Ant on March of 2021, written and drawn by Eric Larson. As for Lev Greeson, there is little public record of his life after his company ended. He tried to file for a passport at the age of 69 on March 24, 1967, having previously been denied one in 1952 during the height of the Red Scare. He would die on September 24th of 1971, leaving only his home and a few thousand dollars. As request, there was no funeral. And that was a rambling and too brief biography of Lev Gleason, a, a Golden Age publisher who helped innovate the comic book medium to what we know today, but was brought down by his own personal politics. While one could disagree with his left-wing views, Gleason was not a criminal and even a patriot, serving his country proudly in two wars, along with producing a successful business. In addition, for comic book fans, he was there at the beginning and through the golden age, helping innovate the medium, particularly the crime genre. For that, despite his politics, we should all, it should all make us grateful for the work he did. I would like to thank the chief source for these episodes, American Daredevil, Comics, Communism, and the Battle of Lev Gleason by Britt Dakin, the legendary publisher's great-nephew. An informative but admittedly biased biography of Lev Gleason that does tilt a bit to the left in politics, but still a great read for anyone interested in his life and career. My name is Mark McCrane. I'm the author of The Best Saturdays of Our Lives. I'm Dan Klink, co-host of The Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast. The Best Saturdays of Our Lives features programming trends from the 1966 television season all the way through the last of the early digital age of the 1990s. On the show, if it's animated, we talk about it. Order your signed copy today at tbsool.com. And listen to the podcast at esonetwork.com and all podcast platforms. Now it is March 3rd, 2022, time for the favorite comic book of the week, Crossover, number 12, by Donnie Coates and uh, Jeff Shaw, along with an uh, opening assist by Robert Kirkman and Phil Hester, which sees the uh, promised epic crossover from the previous issue in which Negan from The Walking Dead faces off against Detectives uh, Walker and Pilgrim from Powers as he's revealed to be the killer of the uh, comic book creators 
All while the mysterious writer who's been held in prison reveals his true identity and his ultimate uh, place in the story. This has been a great series so far for comic fans because it's been living up to what it promises to be, which is literally a comic book crossover, and it delivers in this issue because they're seeing these two, this group of characters from two completely different comic strips merging is brilliant. They work brilliantly together, and the opening uh, panel sequence in which uh, Negan tracks down his own comic creator, Robert Kirkman himself, written by Robert Kirkman and with art by Phil Huster, is equally brilliant. It has a great commentary on the the relationship between the creators and their creation, and it just plays off brilliantly from the beginning. And this is like this is the ultimate uh, comic book for comic fans, and it's matched, of course, by Jeff Shaw's gorgeous artwork, which has great renditions of Negan, Walker, Pilgrim, all the different comic characters, like f- blending in seamlessly with the story overall comic book, but also respecting each other's style. Like, I love the fact that Negan is still in black and white, even though he's in a colored comic book. That's brilliantly done. So, yes, uh, all in all, crossover, just a fun comic for me in the end. You're very, I, I will not recommend it as your first comic book, but once you get into comic books and get familiar with all these uh, characters, this is just a fun, great read. So definitely check it out. And with that, we'll conclude uh, this uh, two-part uh, biography in the life of uh, Lev Gleason. I hope you enjoyed it. And join me again next week. We'll have another History of Comics uh, episode. And until then, go out and enjoy yourself a comic book.